0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. That's a long walk over here. Um, I'll say right at the start that Mayor Newsom is a fan of Twitter. And so uh, questions that come in via Twitter uh, will be sorted by his staff and us, and the really good ones will make it up to the stage. Uh, You would Twitter him at Gavin Newsom. That's G-A-V-I-N-N-E-W-S-O-M. Two other announcements, basically. One, uh, as usual, when we're here at the Kahl Theater, there's a reception at the Long Now Foundation office, shop, museum, and party pad. Uh, just over there. I should mention that the next speaker, Michael Pollan, will not be here, but will be at the Herbst Theater downtown in the Civic Center on May 5th. Mayors are the most powerful politicians in America, Um, right up there with county supervisors. And that may be one of the reasons that of all the political entities in America, cities pay the most attention to each other and learn the most from each other. Uh, It's helpful if you have a young mayor who's still learning. It's helpful if you have a mayor who likes to travel. And it's helpful if you have a mayor who can tell you the things he's been learning, which we'll get tonight, Gavin Newsom.
1: Thanks, sir. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks. I hope that I was young when I started, but I'm not so young anymore. Anyway, Stuart, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and thank all of you for taking the time uh, to be here today. And if I sound a little more exhausted than normal, uh, it's because I started my day about 2.30 this morning. I was out in Washington, D.C. and got up to catch an early flight. I was last night, uh, or rather yesterday, uh, at a conference in Washington, D.C., and I had the great privilege and pleasure uh, to get on stage uh, and debate the future of the car industry, the future of GM and Chrysler. Uh, little did I know that the audience was primarily lobbyists from GM, uh, and my comments apparently didn't go over that well, uh, which made me feel very good uh, about what I had to say. Um, so I may find myself uh, talking a little bit more about that because it does, uh, I think, link into the context of the com- uh, comments that I wanted to make tonight, and then Stuart's going to come up and uh, we'll have a chance to do a Q&A. Uh, but I do want to focus on the issue of sustainability, as is appropriate uh, in the context of what brings you together here for these series of conversations, and in that context try to drill down the issue of sustainability and an environmental framework and talk a little bit about what we're doing in the context of the words Stuart just advanced as it relates to what I've seen happening across not only the rest of the United States but around the world. If you can come back just briefly to 2005 San Francisco hosted a conference. It was a first of its kind. Uh, 2005 marked the 60th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations here in the city and county of San Francisco. It also marked the fact that the United Nations for the first time in U.S. history decided to have its World Environment Day in the United States of America. Uh, It was not easy to find the U.N. and to pique its interest in environmental stewardship in the last decade or so, but they thought the anchor of the 60th anniversary uh, would compel them to consider uh, at least San Francisco in the context of convening the World Environment Day. Uh, We challenged them to think differently about the World Environment Day. And rather than just hosting uh, an afternoon session, we said if we can host a series of discussions, in fact, hundreds of discussions over the course of the week, we think it could have some impact. We invited mayors from around the world, in fact, over 120 mayors from every continent uh, imaginable. Flew out to the city and county of San Francisco for this one week um, of exchange and ideas. Uh, Al Gore himself uh, showed up at UN, uh, rather, showed up in uh, Union Square... And showed his video uh, for the first time. Many of people had heard about the slideshow and the video, but no one had seen it. Uh, and he unveiled it there to a few hundred folks. And we started to really frame uh, new consciousness in the environmental movement. Again, 2004, 2005, things tipped dramatically. It wasn't that long ago that we were still debating uh, though some still are, but we were significantly debating the issue of global warming and climate change, and our consciousness was really beginning to evolve. We had the opportunity to set forth a principles, uh, what we called accords. And we sat down, and we tried to hammer these out. And you can imagine 120 mayors from around the world. It's not easy to agree on a set of policy principles, but we ultimately agreed on 21 policy principles. And the reason we thought it was appropriate to have mayors. And the reason that the UN agreed to invite mayors was, for Stuart, self-evident, and I hope to many of you, uh, self-evident, and to me was um, rather important because it was less self-evident at the time. And that was 2005 also marked. And again, people have disagreed if it was 2004. Some have said it's really 2006, 2007. But we also celebrated a milestone of sort. And the UN advanced it at that conference that for the first time in human history, more people on the planet are living in urban centers and cities than in rural and suburban areas. That we had hit that point for the first time in human history. Now more people living in cities, a million to a million and a half people every single week moving into urban centers this mass urbanization, hundreds of millions of people will be moving into cities uh, just in China alone, in India and other parts of the globe. That the fact that the majority of the earth's population was there was significant, but even more significant is we also marked the fact that in 2005, already that 50 or so percent of mankind was consuming in those cities about 75% of all of the earth's natural resources and polluting the earth by an equivalent amount. Those numbers only going to grow. And so it marked a revelation for me and a consciousness for me that if we're going to get serious about the environment, you're going to get serious about sustainability, you've got to look at the environment very differently than the way I looked at it when I was raised out here in San Francisco where my father used to take me on trips to the Tuolumne River. And that's what I thought was the environment when he was working for Friends of the Tuolumne River, or when we went out and did photographic work to try to save the mountain lions, which he was very passionate down in Hunter's Liggett and other places along uh, this great state. Uh, that was, to me, the environment. Or going up to see the Redwoods was the environment. The idea that now the environment was an urban setting challenged a lot of us. And as a consequence of those accords and that consciousness, everything now I'm focused on, almost exclusively, not everything, but almost exclusively is now the notion of environmentalism in an urban setting and changing the consciousness around what we consume, how we consume, and what we distribute or what we throw away and what we waste and the like. And so we set forth after 2005 some very ambitious goals. Now San Francisco's always been a leader on so many issues, and the environment was no exception, but the bar was pretty low. Uh, We had done some good things uh, but we hardly were in the vanguard of environmental stewardship uh, internationally. In the United States, arguably, we were certainly in the top tier. Uh, but we weren't doing as much as we should be. And so we set forth a strategy, what we called San Francisco Ford, to get very, very serious. And as a consequence, we've made a lot of progress. Again, the bar is a little higher, but I still argue ra- remarkably and relatively uh, low. Here's what we've done, and here's what we're doing, and here's, I think, how it relates to the conversation hopefully we'll have this evening. We set forth some very ambitious goals to dramatically look at our renewable energy portfolio, to begin to look at where our energy consumption was coming from, be it transportation sector, be it the building sector. We looked at our waste distribution in terms of recycling rates. We started looking at public transit versus private vehicles and the like. And we started making a series of policy advancements that today include the following. The most aggressive green building standards of any city in the United States of America. Private sector standards. You want to build a private construction You want to build anything in San Francisco, you've got to meet LEED certifications. Most cities, many cities, in fact, San Francisco is one of the first, require that for municipal purchasers, or rather municipal buildings. So, for example, we build a recreation center. It's got to meet LEED certification. Now we're requiring anyone that builds any new home or new office or any commercial or industrial building in San Francisco to meet those same LEED certifications. goes up to LEED gold in just a few years. We got very aggressive as it relates to biodiesel and trying to get out of the diesel business. And we converted our entire diesel fleet into biodiesel. In fact, we not only did it for public transit uh, and people movers at the zoo, but we finally got public safety involved in this. We have fire engines running on biodiesel. We have ambulances running on biodiesel. We don't know of another city in the United States that has now advanced as comprehensively that strategy. We generate a lot of that biodiesel through a grease cycle program fats oils and grease we actually pick up fats oils and grease from restaurants and from universities and some large companies in the bay area and we pick up those fats oils and grease and we recycle them and we put them back into this what we call grease cycle program which we also think is a model for the rest of the country we reached much deeper in terms of our recycling strategies and finally reached uh, what's a number that we never thought imaginable. 1996, we were at 35% recycling, which, by the way, was pretty good. Few people had ever seen 50% anywhere in the world. And here we were, we had some ambitious goals uh, to get to 70% and we finally hit that last year, the highest recycling rates anywhere in the United States of America. And we're well on our way to hit 75%, we hope, by the end of next year. That's why we got aggressive about styrofoam takeout containers and banned them. That's why we got aggressive. Obviously, Jared Bloomfeld, who came up with this idea when he visited, Stuart, to your point, um, and our head of the Department of Environment, when he visited Ireland, came up with the idea of the plastic bags which ultimately was advanced uh, by Ross Mercurimi at the Board of Supervisors. The original idea was just to charge uh, for the bags, and ultimately that failed in a negotiation with the Grocers Association. Uh, They passed some legislation behind our backs to preempt cities from putting forward a fee, and as a consequence, we decided just to ban them outright in (laughs) reaction uh, to their audacious act. We don't do well with lobbyists. Our lobbyists don't do well with us in San Francisco. We we'll usually always do the opposite. A lobbyist shows up and I remind them it's over. Um, we also went after water bottles. A billion of them a year end up in our waste stream. We believe they... Based, uh, No one's been around to prove it, but again, it's 10,000 years, Stuart. Everything's 10,000 years. These water bottles apparently take 10,000 years to biodegrade. A billion of them a year in California alone end up in our landfills. And I don't know. You're smart people. The idea that you buy Aquafina and Dasani, it's tap water. It's Coke and Pepsi that are in the business of tap water. And they actually put it in bottles, and then they charge you five to ten to 15,000 times more for that same liter of water than it would cost you if you just turned on your tap. And the insidious part of it is that water, once it's put in their bottle, is not as regulated as the water that's in your tap. So our water is safer than the water you're getting in a water bottle. Yet I know many of you. We're driving over here drinking out of one of those water bottles because we're just so convenient and we're so convinced that somehow, all right, maybe it's not the water coming from Echechi, but it's my pipes from my old apartment and that's the reason I need to do it. There's other strategies, perhaps we can talk about that later. But that's why we got so aggressive on those areas, all part of our recycling and the consciousness around that, we got very aggressive about solar as well. When you go around the world you 'll realize we 're not doing much on solar at all. and when you have a country like Germany doing more than the United States on solar, something is absolutely wrong, particularly a city like Berlin that does more per capita than any other city in the world and i don 't know if any of you' have been to berlin i don 't think they 've seen the sun in the last two decades in Berlin. It was a sighting rumored in uh, the early 1980s, Uh, yet they are doing more in photovoltaics than anyone. And so San Francisco, we decided to raise the bar, and we have now the most aggressive rebate strategy, um, local rebate solar program of its type anywhere in the United States of America. And we also have the largest municipally owned solar program anywhere in the United States, which bar is here. We're going to raise it even further next month. Actually, in two months, we'll be doing um, a new installation that's going to be even bigger than the Moscone Center installation down at the Sunset Reservoir, this extraordinary installation that will raise, again, the level of consciousness around solar. We have seen, by the way, almost a 400% increase in um, backyard solar installation since our incentive program just nine or so months ago. It's been a phenomenal success, and I encourage all of you to participate in this program. We've also been very aggressive as it relates to this electric vehicle strategy. And again, those were my comments and the reflection of my comments uh, with General Motors. I, I, GM came out today with, guess what, their new SUV. You th- I think you know, I was making that up. They came out with their new SUV. Is it any wonder that Obama, representing the largest shareholder now in GM, the American people, would say, and I think it's absolutely appropriate as a shareholder, you should have shareholder rights, say, with all due respect, Mr. Wagner, it's time for change. It wasn't just a tagline and a campaign, and we need to move in a different direction. Because the proposal, and I read the plan. Jennifer Granholm was none too pleased, the Michigan governor. I think she's spectacular, by the way. And I, I, and I appreciate she's a tough position as uh, governor of Michigan. She was not too pleased either with my comments. Um, and Jennifer uh, said, well, no one, none of these politicians that are criticizing GM or Chrysler have read the plan. So I made sure before I got in to the seminar to read the plan. And I read it, and by the way, I don't know if you knew this, in the plan it doesn't just talk about your money to bail them out. It talks about foreign governments doing the same. They have six-plus billion dollars they're counting on from other countries. That's in their plan. And they're very proud of noting that in their plan, by 2012, they're committing to have 14 different models of hybrids. And you say, well, that's pretty good until you think for a moment, wait a second, hybrids? Hybrids came out in 1900, in 96, in 1997. That's yesterday's technology. That's hardly tomorrow's technology. That's not game-changing technology. It's the oldest adage in the world. I think it was Michelangelo said it. it. says, the biggest risk is not that you aim too high and miss it. It's that you aim too low and reach it. And those are the plans right now of the big three. And certainly GM and Chrysler you saw the same week that that change was made at GM that in the front page, appropriately, of the New York Times was the announcement that China is moving forward with an aggressive, not hybrid strategy, but plug-in hybrid strategy to electrify their fleet, which should have put shivers in all of our backs because the reality is that's the game-changing technology, is electrifying the vehicle fleet that's the opportunity to truly promote real energy independence and to get serious about what that means from the environmental perspective from foreign policy and from a domestic perspective in terms of the jobs that we all are promoting jobs of the future in this green tech sector plug-in hybrids so what's san francisco doing we want to be the epicenter we want to be the world's headquarters for electric vehicles I happen to think Plug-in hybrids are a game changer. The real game changer is full electric. That's something that I have been promoting for years, and I've walked my talk. I was one of those people um, that had the original electric vehicle from Saturn, which was GM, that they recalled, the EV1. Uh, And they destroyed the technology. And by the way, it's the same guy who was fired that destroyed that technology. And they instead invested in more minivans and SUVs uh, and heavier trucks where they didn't have to meet those CAFE standards, those corporate average full efficiency standards, so they had a bigger profit margin. Uh, And perversely, because of the lobbyists and because of our fabled politician, not just Republicans, Democrats, representing Michigan, we allowed this to happen, and so we were our own worst enemy. Uh, We have not necessarily seen GM come up with anything particularly exciting since that old technology, which was tomorrow's technology that they're still today not arguing for remarkably. They're rhetorically discussing, but they're not advancing in any meaningful way. So we want to be front and center. And so what we've done is we're building out a ubiquitous infrastructure. And you say, well, electric vehicles are great, but you're having two reservations. If the electricity comes from coal, that's terrible. I mean, why are you just substituting one horrible thing for another horrible thing? And we'll talk about that, and that's totally legit. The second argument is range. You know, I, I got it. I got kids and need a bigger car, and we go up to Lake Tahoe periodically. And uh, I can go one way, but I'm not sure I can get back. So we need an infrastructure, and so we're addressing both this way. We'll start with the latter, not the former. Range is a limiting challenge with your car. The one you probably drove here tonight. You have to have gas. You actually have to go and get your tank filled up. If you don't. You're stranded in the middle of the street, and that's happened probably to most of us in this room. No different than an electric vehicle. So you've come to accept, we've got about 169 gas stations all across the United States of America, that one's going to be within proximity to another, or at least within a range that can get you where you want to go from not only points all across the Bay Area, North and South, uh, Southern California, but across this country. That's the idea for electric vehicles to build out, instead of gas stations, switch stations, where you can do exactly what you do with your cell phone when you get a new battery. You can flip that battery out, replace it with a brand new battery in less time than it takes to fill up a tank of gas. True convenience. Now the range issue is dramatically addressed. Or you can look at the whole idea of a car like you look at your cell phone. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, I don't know that any of you know how long your cell phone takes to recharge. Because most of you do it at night, most likely. Same idea would be with your car, which fully recharges. And incidentally, it will be recharging when you have the lightest load. So it levels out the load. And that's a light load with a higher renewable portfolio in those off-peak hours. That's for the other part of my commentary. But what is... An extraordinary opportunity, and this is not just idle speculation, this is happening. It's happening in Israel, it will be happening in Denmark, it will be happening in Australia and Portugal, and I hope it will be happening out here in our own backyard in Northern California, is to look at the car like you do your cell phone for a different reason. You buy minutes, you buy plans, you get prepaid cards, maybe for your kids, you don't want to have unlimited plan. You have restricted plans. Imagine looking at a vehicle like you do your cell phone. And instead of buying minutes, you buy miles. You separate the idea. Same thing the phone companies have done. The actual phone is nothing. They're giving those phones away, the hardware. It's really become a software strategy. Same idea presents itself if we reimagine the car industry. And look at it accordingly. Separate the battery and the energy, i.e. electricity, from the actual physical car. Have people build cars and have a strategy for software, strategy for electricity, for the oil in this case, as the alternative. And buy miles instead of buying minutes. That's what a company called Better Place is promoting. And that's what they're doing with Sharon Perez. In Israel as we speak that's what they're doing in just a few weeks in Japan when they're building out that first switch station that I talked about that will be in commercial production this is an opportunity to completely rethink this industry and this is what's missing completely at GM and Chrysler and the big three right now but this is what's happening out here in California a state of dreamers and doers of entrepreneurs of innovators always on the leading and cutting edge of new ideas. Tesla Motor, zero to 60 in four seconds, completely green, 100% electric vehicle company out here in the South Bay. It's happening as we speak, completely allowing you to reimagine what the old uh, electric vehicle should be about. It's not about performance, people said. Well, now you have a car that performs a higher clip than even a new Ferrari or Porsche in terms of how quick and efficient it is with half the moving parts. So it doesn't have to be maintained as much or as significantly. Much more efficient because it has half the moving parts. Electricity, where does it come from? Well, in San Francisco, we built out some charging stations. You can go to our garages. You're going to be going a lot more places in the next few years. We want to build out tens of thousands of charging stations throughout our city. I want you to ultimately go to a parking meter... And rather than just paying more for your parking meter, you may get a little more in this case. And that is you can plug in to that parking meter. We're going to be rolling out 25% of all our parking meters in San Francisco. We're moving away from those ugly poles, and we're getting rid of them, and we're going to have boxes. And we're going to be the first city with congestion pricing strategies for parking and new technology where you actually have sensors underneath the parking space. And when the car is there, you'll know on your PDA or your home computer. When a car is not there, you'll know that space is available. And you'll actually be able to check it ahead of time. And we'll price it based upon strategy of congestion. So it'll be more expensive to park during peak time, much less expensive during off-peak time in order to encourage that off-peak opportunity to spend more and to level out that demand model. 25% of them we're starting this year. It's called SF Park. But we want to incorporate a strategy as well so you can plug in to some of these uh, parking meters. The good thing from San Francisco is all our municipal energy is completely green and renewable. Comes from Echechi. May not have been my first choice back in the turn of the century to dam a beautiful part of the Yosemite Valley, but it was done and we've been taking advantage of it. All our municipal load, all our lights in the city are run off that, about 96% to be precise. So every time you park in a garage and you take advantage of that plug in one of our municipal garages, that's green energy. That's not coal. 50% of electricity in the United States comes from coal. About 19% comes from natural gas. 19% comes from nuclear. About 9% comes from hydro. Wind and solar, and 3%, still remarkably, of electricity comes from oil. So the more we increase that mix, then we'll substantially decrease, obviously, the negative side of using electricity that doesn't come from a renewable source. The opportunity, though, is with baseline renewable standards, as California has advanced, where we're currently at 12%, of our energy portfolio is renewable, we're going up to 33% by 2020. We're going to substantially improve that mix and substantially reduce greenhouse gas emissions accordingly. One point, though, of good news, even if you use coal-generated electricity, it's more efficient than using oil because of the point I just made. The efficiency of electric vehicles is dramatic compared to to, uh, combustion engines. Less moving parts. So, that efficiency, even on an equivalency of coal versus oil, you have a lower amount of greenhouse gas emission or specifically carbon dioxide uh, that is being emitted in that electric vehicle. Something else that is a myth that somehow they're equivalent, they're not because of the efficiency, again, of an electric vehicle. So, even at the worst case scenario, we're doing better in terms of the environment. These are just some areas on the environment that I wanted to advance for the purpose perhaps of a dialogue uh, with Stuart and all of you this evening that at least enliven my senses and motivate me uh, and have gotten me to believe we can do more and better. Quickly, what does that mean? We're about to require composting, only big city in the United States of America to do that. We've gotten very serious. You can have Michael Pollan in here, which is Spectacular! He's one of my my heroes, and Alice Waters. Why we put that big remember that Victory Garden? We put a big vegetable garden in front of City Hall. Uh, now you're seeing um, folks in Washington D.C. and Michelle Obama, First Lady Obama, doing one, and now you've got uh, Maria Shriver doing one up in Sacramento. I remember when we put our garden in, Willie Brown chastised me and said, "What's he going to? You're going to have cows and horses next uh, out there?" Missing the point that this was about Raising the environmental consciousness about what we eat and where we get the food. You're going to go home tonight, and the chances are that the average plate, and this may be, this certainly is not an average audience, but in San Francisco, the average uh, consumed meal tonight will probably have traveled some 1,400 miles to the plate. Yet 80% of everything we need is produced within a 100-square-mile radius of that Golden Gate Bridge. How does that make sense? The most vibrant agricultural region... Arguably anywhere in the world. And we're fresh, well, we're freezing things, fresh frozen, sending them overseas to process to have them come back uh, at the Marina Safeway. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so we're really trying to challenge people about this urban-rural connection in terms of agriculture and food. And so we have a whole new food strategy. It's all part of our healthcare strategy. As you know, we're the only city in the United States of America with a universal health care plan that's actually implemented for sixty four percent of people, comprehensive universal health care. And now we're focusing on investing in people's health as opposed to treating their sickness, which means we're focusing on what they eat, their wellness how they exercise, what they're drinking. And that's not just alcohol. That's big gulps in the morning that four-year-olds are drinking. And that's why we had this obesity numbers that came out for four-year-olds yesterday, which should have stopped all the presses as well, which are, of course, increasing health care costs for all of you type 2 diabetes and all these chronic diseases because of that eating and drinking problem. So that's another big focus in the carbon footprint associated with food and how it travels uh, and how it's manufactured and how it's produced. It's another area of this environmental consciousness for a sustainable city that we're also arguing for and also advancing. Um, We also, and just I'll close and bring Stuart up, and we can talk about all kinds of other topics uh, that I think are pertinent to a sustainable city. But because we're here, I think it's important to note, we just, um, we've spent about four years on this. Um, five miles off the coast of Ocean Beach. In a few years, you're going to have the first commercial scaled wave generation project or generating project in California's history. The vision and idea is to get rid of those 33 polluting oil platforms. Now, this may be a little audacious but I like it nonetheless, and replace them with wave-generation platforms and harness Mother Nature's extraordinary energy. She's just been waiting for us all these millennia. Saying, what is wrong with you people? You're drilling to take out things that have been sequestered and are safe, and now you're destroying your planet when here I am every single day providing everything you need. Five miles off the coast, wave-generating platform, Finally got our permit in after years and years of studies, and we want to be the first big uh, commercial application of that new technology. And second, right below the Golden Gate Bridge, in fact, the studies show it's on the northern part, this new Doppler radar strategy. Take an inverted wind farm, or rather take idea of a wind farm and put it underwater. And now harness all the energy in that tidal flow. Think about the mouth of the, the Golden Gate, the bay. It's relatively small. You've got this great energy that comes in and out 24-7. All of that dense energy being wasted again. You have the opportunity to do what's been done in other countries around the world. And that's harness that energy flow by bringing in these wind turbines. And they're not really wind turbines, but that's the kind of idea in bringing them in underwater. So again, we've been spending years on this one. This one's Become more complicated. A lot of environmental concerns if you have big turbines and plankton coming in, and seals and sea lions and uh, who knows what else getting sucked up and consumed, and we're working through all those issues. Uh, but we also want to be <laughs> front and center uh, on all of that. Uh, so, again, those are things just for the, the past, the present, uh, and I think a more sustainable uh, and enlivening future. Final point on this this thing. The opportunity is self evident. You've, you've probably all of you now, by now, have heard of Van Jones. Van showed up. He's now the advisor for Obama. He started this organization called Green For All a number of years ago. He started it at the World Environment Day in 2005. He just had this separate conference because he said, I remember him yelling and screaming at me, saying, Hey, all you guys look like you, uh, Mayor. I said, What do you mean look like me? And they said, well, You're all white. The environmental movement's just too white. He didn't literally say this, but he implied it, and he was not wrong. It's true. This whole environmental movement, all these years, it's, it's, you know, it's a certain group of folks. And he was making the case, what about all of us? And he held this little side meeting. It was down there, I think it was at, it was, in fact, I remember, it was at the Metreon, Sony Metreon. It was the only room he can get. And he had this remarkable conference and this discussion, and probably about 70 people there, One a huge crowd And he started talking about twinning the opportunity to deal with environmental justice, social justice, broadly speaking, income inequality, which at the time had grown acutely under the Bush administration, and to start twinning the opportunities to create real green-collar jobs. And that's when Green for All and this organization really started to take shape. And here he is now advising President Obama just a few years later, wrote this uh, really wonderful book, which I encourage you to pick up, where he really lays out a blueprint to deal not just with one issue, the environment, not just deal with two issues, jobs and the economy, but to deal with that big third. And that is locking people into this new sustainable future that have been locked out of the old industrial past and making sure we reconcile the issue of race, in relationship to the environment. Four out of five toxic waste dumps, primarily in African-American communities. Asthma rates, here we are, the 94123 um, zip code. Asthma rates are literally eight times higher in the Bayview-Hunters Point than where we're sitting here today, in the same city, where you have two polluting power plants. Now one, because we shut down Bayview-Hunters Point plant. We're still trying to work to get Petrero Plant torn down. That's a serious issue. And this is the great opportunity of this environmental movement is to twin these issues in a substantive way. So green-collar jobs, these jobs that we talk a lot about, this is also extraordinarily important. And I'll just note this. When we did our solar program, we did it with this in mind. If you want to do solar, you'll get $2,000 from the city, just right off the bat. If you want to do solar... And you want more money from the city, then you have the opportunity to hire from one of our workforce training programs, and we'll give you $3,000. But if you want to even get more, hire from one of our workforce training programs from employees that live in a certain zip code in San Francisco, and we'll get you to $4,000. whole idea of incentivizing a focus and attention to address this issue in a substantive way. And by the way, the overwhelming majority of people are doing just that. They recognize the opportunity to do the right thing. It makes a lot of sense for them directly as well. And remember, those rebates go up to $10,000. So I want you to think about that um, as you leave tonight. For those of you that have not put solar up or your landlord has not put solar up, uh, go on solarmapsf.org. You can actually map your roof And we'll have all of these incentives right there, the Million Solar Roof Initiative at the state, federal tax credits, everything you need to get it done. And then you say, wait a second, there's still a gap, and I'm barely holding on to my job. Well, you wait 30 days. We'll have the most aggressive Berkeley eat your heart out. I love Tom Bates, what you've done. Ain't seen nothing yet. We're about to have the most expansive strategy to pay the delta and the difference and to put it on your taxes, or rather put it on... Uh, your property tax. Uh, not just for solar. We're going to allow you to finance without a dollar out of pocket and amortize over the life of your loans. The ability to do energy efficiency, all kinds of weatherization, boiler replacements, uh, deal with shower heads and uh, toilets as well as solar. This is the next very exciting part. And then link, again, those dollars into these workforce training green-collar job focus, environmental justice, social justice focus, again, as part of this new narrative of interdependence on all of these issues, which, again, I think is a big part of Stuart's passion and his purpose uh, and his foundational beliefs uh, that, I think, uh, drive most of your passions in this room. So I hope those things at least get you thinking uh, for the purpose of uh, conversation tonight I am very enthusiastic, and I mean this with sincerity, about the future. Uh, I think we're barely scratching the surface. I have great expectation uh, that we can continue to do more and do better, scale these things. They can be scaled. Conversation has changed. People are experimenting all over the country. Sam Adams, who's the new mayor of Portland, just announced a electric vehicle war against San Francisco. Which was you know, New York Times picked up, which uh, is great. Uh, Bloomberg stole our taxi cab idea uh, when he converted his cabs to green cabs. We did that a year prior. I announced it on local cable channel 26. That's probably why you didn't hear it. He announced it on the, but he announced it on the Today Show. That's why you did. He's got a bigger... Po- he even, he's on the cover. I was taking Amtrak the, from New York to D.C., and there's Bloomberg on the cover of the Amtrak magazine, and it's all about his new urban wind strategy. God is my witness. He stole that from us three months ago. We had a big piece about our urban wind task force, and he announces it gets in the AP. And in the article, I said, well, what new idea does he have that we haven't done? It's just well, it's just an idea, and they've got a 10-page spread about this brilliant visionary mayor uh, in Bloomberg. My point only saying this is I'm proud that he's doing it and we're very excited (laughs) that this competition is taking shape in the environment and it's a very healthy competition and apparently Sam has raised the bar in Portland. And by the way, and this is my final word, Stuart, Portland is particularly distressing because Portland every single year is the number one sustainable city in the United States to San Francisco's Just, I mean, five years in a row, second runner-up every year. San Francisco, number two, Portland, number one. So we're going after Portland, enough of Portland. If you're from Portland, you know, enough. Uh, Give us a break. Uh, We don't want to be runner-up forever. Uh, But again, it's all about raising the bar and raising consciousness, and this is kind of a race to the top, not a race to the bottom. Uh, And it's a very, very good thing. And that uh, does tie in to those other 120 mayors that signed these accords. Even the mayor of Tehran. We had diplomatic relationships with Tehran going back years ago, Uh, ironically. um, That these mayors are paying attention. And they are holding themselves accountable. And they are on the front lines of this. And that's why, again, I, I express a lot of hope and a lot of optimism, and uh, I really do think the best is yet to come. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for
0: making comparisons to cities. Um, say a little more about your travels, where you've been both before and, and since you became mayor, and what you've noticed for good and for bad in other cities around the world. Well, I was just, um, I'm, I was on my
1: honeymoon, which apparently I didn't really think it through, uh, because when I go someplace uh, as mayor, I always want to meet with the mayor and apparently it wasn't the best choice uh, when you're, you just got married and you're on your honeymoon to spend time focusing on transportation uh, in Kenya. Uh, but that's what we did. We, 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 we did the usual safari day and then I said I need to spend the day with the mayor in Nairobi. Uh, and so we, we spent a day there and it just you, you triggered that in my mind. Um, this is a place that no public transit whatsoever. I mean, two-thirds of our public transit is um, running on alternative energy already. We have a goal by 2020 to be completely renewable, 100% green. We have now the third largest fleet. And these are actual, and these are not per capita adjusted. And we're not a huge city, but the third largest hybrid fleet in America. And we added that biodiesel component, which reduces our NOx emissions about, by about 90%, uh, percent, which was a new part of the portfolio last year. And we've got some other very ambitious plans in the next few years in spite of Big budget constraints, which I know are driving everyone crazy uh, because we're concerned about raising the fares and other fees and fines. Uh, And none of those decisions, by the way, have been made. So those that have been critical are right to criticize, don't worry. We haven't done anything yet. I can't promise we won't. But the contrast was so stark. You cannot run a a world-class urban center without a world-class public transit uh, system. There's no way to accommodate the growth of these cities and the mass urbanization without a dynamic public transit system. Uh, we have tried to link the public transit to the taxi cab industry. We've put the cab companies now under our new Metropolitan Transportation Agency. We put parking and traffic under our Metropolitan Transportation Agency because you can't drive the streets of a dense urban core unless you're moving double parked cars off the streets, can you imagine? I mean, we'll never navigate in a dense urban environment, San Francisco, if you've got trucks and personal vehicles every two blocks uh, in the way. So you've gotta link the parking and traffic discipline, obviously, to the public transit discipline. We're offering considerations on congestion pricing, not just for parking meters, but overall in the city along the lines of Singapore, which is another model city. Stockholm, uh, that advanced it. And certainly London, though it's being pulled back in London, New York Mayor Bloomberg tried See, to about it. How, And so those are just examples of cities, play, in play in those that we're cities ideas.
0: You said London's pulling back a little bit. How does it actually play out, and how are they different in Stockholm and Singapore in these places? Well,
1: Singapore invented this idea. It started in Singapore. Everyone focused on Mayor Livingston in London. You've got a new mayor uh, that's actually pulling back. They actually expanded their uh, congestion pricing in London. And that expansion's been pulled back to the original downtown core. It hasn't. It depends on how you want to analyze the studies, and I've studied this a lot. In London, it's become accepted, but it's hardly popular. Um, it's costly, and not all the money has gone to what they promised it would go to, which is public transit. And that's where you get in trouble not following through on your promises. Stockholm did it then had a national revolt and revolution sort of pulled back, and now they're trying to pull forward again. And you saw what Bloomberg try to do in New York and got crushed. You, you should note that the money we're getting for our parking meters comes from the urban partnership dollars that Bloomberg lost when he lost the congestion pricing money. So that was actually New York's dollars that we were able to pull into San Francisco for a different kind of congestion strategy, which was a parking meter strategy as opposed to a car strategy. But I I bring up those cities in contrast to a place like Nairobi, where you could see best practices or new ideas and innovation taking shape, and then you could just see um, just the devastation, the health devastation, the congestion, the chaos um, that exists in cities around the world uh, like Nairobi, and it's a point of real concern. Public transit in the relationship to the environment is foundational in principle. Did you
0: point. happen to get out to Kibera, the big squatter city next to Nairobi? No, I, I, I,
1: I've been, I was there about 10, 15 years ago. Ah. And a lot, I saw photographs actually in my house um, that I took. It was, uh, it's, it's alarming.
0: We had one question from Kevin Kelly. In terms of infrastructure, which city in the world, other than this one, you most admire in terms of the infrastructure?
1: Well, I admire for the wrong reasons, but I've been to Shanghai a few times in the last few years. And it's just mesmerizing, just extraordinary, these mega cities that are going up. Uh, and they're doing meglev in terms of high speed rail. They're moved to the next stage of high speed rail. You go from the airport into Shanghai in 20 plus minutes. And it's literally magnetic levitation which deals with no friction, obviously, on the rails. We're pushing very passionately and aggressively to build the Grand Central Station of the West Coast of the United States here in the city and county of San Francisco at the Transbay Terminal. We want the terminus of the high-speed rail to end in the downtown core. So you go from San Francisco to L.A. in 2 hours and 26 minutes, downtown to downtown. Candidly, that's technology that's 30 years old. It's the electrification. This is the next phase technology. The challenge Shanghai is having is that it's been very costly in terms of maintenance, but it's mesmerizing to see it, as is mesmerizing to see the density that's going up in these skyscrapers. And so it's cities like that that I've been wildly impressed. Now, it's not a model city from my perspective, but there's components uh, that do, uh, I think, lend themselves. Again, density, focus on uh, transit-oriented development, focus on building a connection, uh, regional connection, inner-city connections in terms of high-speed rail systems, not these old antiquated systems that we have throughout the United States. It's a disgrace. I mean, any of you have traveled to Europe and you've gone on the TGV or these others, uh, that here we are in Silicon Valley, California, and we're still struggling to justify taking off our shoes on Southwest Airlines to run to the airport to then wait for... Uh, you know, the plane to arrive to realize that we're an hour and a half late uh, to get on a flight that was supposed to be 20 minutes to Fresno that's an hour and a half uh, because it has to circle around. I mean, this is ridiculous. And so the high-speed rail and these rail systems are a big part, I think, of California's future and certainly a big part of uh, the Bay Area's future. A couple questions
0: on basically the role of mayor and how mayordom works. One from a Twitter question from B. Gutierrez. What are the most permanent decisions a mayor can
1: make? Well, That's a great question because everything that's done can be undone. Um, It's really true. You pass a law one day, you can rescind it the next day. Um, You know, I I say this all the time. I'm the future ex-mayor of San Francisco. That I know. Um, And guys like me come and go. I mean, they do. I I mean, there there have been 41 others, and there will be 41, hopefully, God's willing, next generations. Um, But principles transcend. Values permeate and transcend. And when I think of San Francisco in terms of the things that unite and the things that are permanent, it's those values. I mean, you think about it. We're 160 or so years old, and the values were really promulgated in San Francisco um, in the mid-1850s, with the discovery of gold. People came from all over the world for riches and new beginnings a small fishing village was literally turned overnight into a quarter million people from all over the world talk about diversity and from that the framework that exists today one of the most diverse cities in the most diverse region in the most diverse state in the world's most diverse democracy and we can say this proudly it's not perfect and it's hardly exclusive but people are living together and advancing together and struggling to prosper together across every conceivable difference and it's because we don't just tolerate that diversity, we celebrate it. And it's that ability to reconcile our differences, to celebrate them, but to unite around those things that bind us together that transcend, that have been more permanent in many respects than any specific initiative or idea. It's the reason we're doing universal health care. It's intuitive here. It's the reason we have a sick leave ordinance. It's the reason we have the highest minimum wage. It's the reason that we have a working families tax credit and a strategy to get people out of check cashing places into banking strata into banks. It's the reason we're rebuilding our public housing. Long overdue but finally reconciling. It's the reason we have the most aggressive environmental program in America. It's the reason we have been there in terms of the fight of HIV or AIDS. It's the reason that we've led in terms of smoking cessation. It's the reason that we've been the city we are. And that's more permanent. And that's extraordinarily proud of. And that's hard to pinpoint. And that's the most important thing. And that goes to pride and spirit, those intangibles. And so those values are the thing that every single day I think about, how can we advance the values that define this city and transcend this city in terms of its leadership? That's why gay marriage was so obvious and intuitive. It was a principle of uniting people, that framework of equality, that notion, again, that we're all in this together, and that celebration of that diversity and so again it was a natural extension of the narrative that is the story of San Francisco and I do think there's permanence to that and I think whoever your next mayor is, your next board of supervisors, your next governor, whoever the next president is, San Francisco will if it continues to remind itself of that proposition, that orientation uh, that will continue to permanently outperform on so many different levels the rest of the state and the nation. Here's a governance question that comes up, particularly in context of
0: good old new urbanism, which partly was born in this area. And the new urbanists want, well, especially Peter Calthorpe wants regions to be governed, not just cities. And particularly San Francisco is this rather small uh, entity in a rather large metropolitan area. And now uh, demographers and city people are talking about what are called megapolitan areas, in our case reaching basically all the way to Reno. And there's one all the way down the East Coast and so on. And this is where a lot more than half the world is now. is in these megapolitan areas. And, you know, there's different watersheds. There's different counties. There's state lines that sometimes cut across these things. Um, What have you found, either in your travels or in the way things are progressing here,
1: and how regional governments... A lot of rhetorics. You know, it's the big thing. When I become mayor, we're going to work more regionally together. And the other mayors say it, and then we show up, and we have a great press conference. say It's just great to be working. And we run back, and nothing really gets done. I mean, you see it over and over again. And here's why. I mean, it's not – I've dealt with two different mayors from San Jose, two different mayors from Oakland. And so I've done all these pre- – we did it on earthquake and safety. We did it on regional transit. We've done it on environmental stewardship just a few weeks ago, and we've done it on housing. And they're fabulous. people are excited, and we got a bag there, empty all these regional agencies, and everyone shakes hands, and we sign these great things. Then we walk away, and the reason we do is because we're fighting for money, and we're fighting against each other. BART to San Jose, it's great, but Muni, um, light rail into Chinatown or a subway into Chinatown is what I'm after. And so by definition, we're in a competitive environment. The challenge is then to regionalize funding. If you can regionalize funding, then you have true regionalism. And this is something that needs to change dramatically in the state of California. It changed, Stuart, as it relates to funding for homeland security. Hmm. We used to have something called Uwazi grants, these urban area grants. Now we have Suazi grants, these super urban area grants. And it was the best thing that could have happened, not for San Francisco, but for the San Francisco Bay Area. Because we were always more competitive when we were going after those dollars with Nancy Pelosi and Feinstein and Boxer. But then they changed the funding where it said all of you have to come together and you have to put aside your differences and you've got to prioritize your respective efforts on, for example, interoperability, the ability to communicate across jurisdictions, etc. And as a consequence, we have real planning. We have... Very stressful strategies, but at the end of the day, we have a framework for a real dialogue. MTC tries to do that on transportation, but again, it's limited. It's not as comprehensive. If you can link funding, you'll have true regionalism. I I always agree with the idea. Think globally, act locally, plan regionally. That was always the piece that was missing, the plan regionally. And that's critical. We're never going to have enough affordable housing in the city and county. We're never going to solve homelessness for everybody. We have for 9,000-plus people, but we have thousands more that have just arrived without a regional approach. We're never going to ultimately address the environment by definition. It knows no boundaries unless we have a regional, and I mean broadly regional, approach. So all of these issues have to be dealt with in advance. Sounds like you're
0: saying fund regionally. Yeah. So does that get done from the federal level usually? I guess that happened with the... At a terrorist stuff, or was that state? Yeah, it was mostly federal dollars. Um, but the state, state, it? state it has, has to the do, state the do the same thing.
1: thing. Absolutely. The state needs to do the same thing. And, and, and that's, again, it's what's missing. We're still stuck in these old silos of 150 years ago. Remember, the civil service system in San Francisco was conceived at the turn of the century. The state of California, the last, that big constitutional convention everyone's talking about, last one we had was 1,878. I mean, things haven't dramatically changed. I, I was arguing, I said, GM's new strategy is the reason they got upset. Well, there are a lot of reasons. I said, your, your plan is just about failing more efficiently. <laughs> I'm, and, and so I find that we can argue the same oftentimes, right? I mean, certainly the educational debate in this country, certainly in the state. So it requires some order of magnitude change. That's why I like... Thinking in terms of just reframing the entire debate, even away from what kind of vehicles, to a new model of delivering minutes or miles—in that case, a new way of thinking—that's what defines the best of this region and the spirit of the state. Um, actually, one more mayor question.
0: I've noticed that cities that have able to really been buckled down and able to improve from decade to decade often keep the same mayor for decade to decade. You've seen it in places Corruption, like Charleston and Chicago. Survive, yeah. So <laughs> is uh, term limits for mayors uh, in San Francisco a good or a bad idea? I think it's a good thing. Say why.
1: Well, I, I'm, I'm not a big term limit fan, but for executives I am. Um, I think it's healthy. I, 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 I Mayor Bloomberg and I have become, you know, I won't say good friends, but I have great respect and admiration I was. Of course, having fun at his expense, but he does the same with me. Um, you know, I thought it was rather audacious, this third-term extension. Um, though I'm candidly quite pleased because I think he'll have an outstanding third term. Um, but I don't think it's the right thing. Uh, I don't think it's a healthy thing even for the city of New York. I think change is good. Uh, again, it's, the importance is to recognize that institutionally, You've got to have some impact if you want that change not to denigrate or be turned back. Meaning you want it, I want to, for example, I did something, you probably, two-thirds of you in this room oppose, care not cash. It's a profoundly significant change that I've tried to institutionalize. And 2,600 human beings have the dignity of a key lock in a door in a house because we had the courage to dramatically change the way we delivered a basic fundamental service to homeless. We tried to buy our way out of the problem before. Now we're trying to solve the problem by focusing on housing expansion. It's hardly been perfect. But I'm trying to institutionalize that through this direct access to housing model so that when I'm gone, at least that permanency transcends. Uh, but you don't at that point need me around. You need the next mayor to come up with a different idea, a different profound way of building on that and taking it to the next level. And I, So I think it's good. You get stuck in a rut. You know, I'm Five years into this, I'm having the same meetings at the same time of the year, same hour of the day. I'm like, haven't, didn't we, and I go, oh, that was a year ago. But didn't we, have, oh, it was two years ago. And it's just sort of, you know, there's a, you get into that rut. And that's why um, it's, uh, it's important to get uh, folks out of that rut by getting new folks in. How's uh, that question of homeless
0: raises the question of how is San Francisco doing in the economic downturn as we call it.
1: Well, better than anybody else, with the fourth lowest unemployment of the 58 counties in the state of California, our bond rating was raised as the state of California's was lowered below Louisiana, the lowest in the United States. Ours was raised. We have a Danny day reserve that allowed us to take care of every teacher that was laid off. And it's going to allow us to draw down about 49 million dollars to help offset some of these cuts that we'd otherwise experience because of our deficit. We have a city That has high unemployment, but again, compared to Los Angeles, other parts of the state, it's not even close. Uh, We are the birthplace of biotech and life sciences, but we had only one biotech company five years ago. Now we have 47. Pfizer just announced their bioinnovation biotherapeutic center coming into San Francisco, anchored by Gladstone and QB3, and now, of course, uh, the California Stem Cell Institute. Digital media, digital arts, not just Lucas and ILM, uh, but Orphanage and others are out here. The San Francisco Bay Area. The green tech companies are 197 now. We did tax incentives for green tech, tax incentives for biotech and life science. We got Wikipedia to move their headquarters here. We got Suntech, the largest photovoltaic manufacturer in the world now, to move their American, North American headquarters here. We've been very. We, we remember we were it used to be a headquarters city, but increasingly. That's the case. It's not the Chevrons anymore, and I don't think that's a terrible thing in some respects, or the B of A's, especially under the circumstances, B of A they can hold us hostage cities. But it's these smaller companies, the Second Life type companies. It's getting Google to m- bring their creative workers into San Francisco. These are the reasons, Stuart, uh, you're we're doing better in terms of unemployment in the economy than our peer 30s.
0: Yeah, this was a question for Kathleen. Looks like, do you have? Um, she's raising the question of the basically um, how employees can live in these startups here. Typically, startups can't pay all that much, so how
1: yeah. does that work? Well, we, it's such a timely question. We put together a local stimulus plan. It occurred to me, you hear all this, the federal government's doing a stimulus plan. Here's California with a $2 trillion, it used to be a $2 trillion economy. $2 trillion economy, and there wasn't a, you know, my friend David Crane, who, works for the governor, called me when I said that on uh, a show the other day. said, we have one, I, I, and David has been doing a good job for the governor. Uh, but I just feel like the state should be doing more in terms of economic stimulus and recovery. doesn't mean just printing money. There are other things to do. And so we put together 15 specific strategies for a local economic stimulus, and they're very detailed. And one of them answers that question. With all of this new vacant space coming up, How can we get nonprofits and how can we get small startups to create incubator opportunities? And we're doing just that through what we call our Marketplace Initiative. I won't bore you. It's all on our website that walks through in detail what that means and how we can get people into these spaces and how we can incubate small startups in life science and biotech, which, by the way, we're about to make an announcement there of some uh, new incubator strategy, but also in other high-tech areas.
0: Well, a question like that that I've run into in various places. I mean, Portland, famous green city. The Pearl District is <sighs> see. There where it goes again. It. Uh,
1: Portland, that famous. i have to tell you a problem they just have. Hurts. You can tell me how you don't have it here, but yeah, I, I'll it's bet terrible. you
0: do. Um, the Pearl District in Portland. So you know they've got uh, EcoTrust based there as a new green part of town. They've got the trolley coming through, yeah. and they can't get families because they can't get families with kids. Not because they can't afford it, but because the good schools are out in the suburbs where everybody went some while ago. They can't get a good school in town,
1: so they can't get the families. How do we deal with that? Well, we have some great schools, not good schools, in San Francisco. And I want you to know this. And you probably, uh, you know, a lot of you probably don't live here because you moved out. How many you live in kids? San Francisco? Just to see. Whoa. Well, that is remarkable. These are constituents, Mayor. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you very much for being here. I. This is one of the most uh, impressive audiences I've had the chance. Uh, but we're the top-performing urban school district in the state of California. Seven years in a row of improved test scores. If you get into Lowell or Lincoln or Washington, you're some of the best high schools in America. The challenge is not all schools are like Lincoln, Lowell, and Washington. So there's tremendous disparity. We're failing African Americans Latinos. The achievement gap is deplorable. But it is almost everywhere else in the country, especially in urban centers. Every year, though, we're making progress. You may not know this, but I'm very proud of this. We have a partnership with our public schools. We call it a partnership for achievement. That's rhetorical. Let me give you the substance. We're the only city in the state of California that does universal preschool. We're the only big city in America. Denver has a version that has done it successfully and comprehensively. We value early childhood education. You want to get serious about the achievement gap and graduation rates? You want to lower your truancy and dropout rates? Focus on early childhood education. This city is a model for the nation in terms of that work. That doesn't pay off overnight, but that return on investment is anywhere from 7 to $10, depending on the study, and it will pay great dividends over the course of the next decade or two. We put arts education back in every school. Every child, every classroom has comprehensive arts education. The city, you funded it, even though the state is the primary funding source for education. We put doctors back into all our schools. We call them wellness centers we opened up to deal with physical health as well as adolescent mental health needs. We're putting these edible school gardens in. We're doing composting. We've got kids... 25 salad bars, the city funded. We're doing salad bars. Kids are literally eating broccoli. I don't know if they know what they're doing (laughs) in these public schools. We have an audacious idea. We value, I believe, in pre K to 16. I I think this K through 12, and that's just something that needs to be thrown out. We now have done something. We did this the other day. We had a graduation ceremony for 420 of our 3,500 sixth graders. And we gave them certificates of guarantee, guaranteeing every single one of those sixth graders a four-year college education. We're doing that for all of our sixth graders in our public schools. Tell me a city in this country that does that, pre-K to 16. We guaranteed, I just told you, $24.5 million we shifted over this year or committed to. It will go out in a few months. So that all those layoffs, or at least I think it was 80 plus percent of the layoffs, were rescinded from the school district, and we're hoping to get the rest in the next few months. So no teachers were laid off. You just supported giving teacher raises last year. $5,000 across the board, roughly. And then an additional incentive, if you work in low-performing schools, in hard-to-teach subjects, And new strategies to support more professional development of our teachers. What city has done that? It's a very exciting strategy. And it's an exciting time for public schools in San Francisco. I know it doesn't feel that way. And I know it's frustrating. I know the assignment strategy is antiquated. And getting your kids into the school of choice is almost impossible. And I know how many of you have threatened your friends and family to leave To go down to Walnut Creek or do what my mother did, which was move us to Corda Madera. And that's why I went to Redwood High School and not where she went, Lowell. Of course, there was another reason I could never have gotten into Lowell. (laughs) Uh, And she was smarter than I. But nonetheless, uh, this remains one of a big and challenging and vexing. Issues of our time. There's no more important issue in the state of California than human capital and the investment in people and human beings. It's been our godsend. It's the reason California matters. It's the reason San Francisco matters. Talent, people. Fibrogen moves into San Francisco and five prime therapeutics. They move into the city for one reason. It was cheaper to do business here. Not because it's cheaper to do business here, but it was cheaper to do business here because so many of their employees came from here and it cost too much to relocate them. So they might as well be in the city where they had the talent. That's why Google moved 600-plus jobs into San Francisco. Because they were shipping them all down and it was costing millions. They might as well have them here. That's why Microsoft moved in and Yahoo's expanded with their design firms. Talent. If we stop investing in people and talent, this state is in serious trouble. And that investment starts in preschool. That investment advances through K through 12 into institutions of higher learning, and that's the focus of any successful sustainable community, not just cities, but rural and suburban areas as well.
0: Okay, here's a couple of
1: constituent-type questions. Hey. Thank you. Take a bow.
0: Uh, Jennifer Berry says, I've been told it is illegal for San Franciscans to collect rainwater for their landscapes. It's true.
1: Boy, I, it sh- and you know what? I'm gonna, I'm, it can't be, and if it is, I need to fix that. Particularly because of this. I, I went out with the PUC a few months ago into our public schools and, they're, and we actually are giving our public schools these new rainwater collections systems. <laughs> so if I'm promoting it on one hand and we had all the kids out there and the little kids and they learned on the roof and then they're... they're it's, anyway, it's, a, it's just a suite. I go Every week I visit one or two schools. I, I joke with the school board. I've been to more schools than any of the school board members. Um, and it's just one, again, big passion of mine. But the rainwater collection... Um, absolutely should be. We're doing, we have done lousy job at recycling water, and that's inexcusable. And mark my words, in a couple of years, there'll be no one doing a better job at recycling water than San Francisco. So rainwater is a big part of that. And so if this is true, can I steal that? Uh, yeah. You um, got I'm going to mm-hmm. fix that And uh, uh, if, indeed, there's problems with that. You yeah, Here oh, you go. good. That sounds like it is a problem. So, all right, I'll... Thank you. Uh,
0: Another constituent question. Do you think more difficult building standards will drive even more people to build illegally? How do we encourage green building in unpermitted
1: construction? No, because green doesn't cost that much more. It's a myth. I mean, let's see. (laughs) There's not been a study that's come out on green buildings that hasn't proven two things. It costs less to operate, It is higher value. It's cheaper to insure. And for those in the commercial sector, you get two benefits, higher rents and a more productive workforce. Why is anyone building with non-recycled material in energy inefficient ways? It makes no sense. The fact that we have to mandate it is perverse. And I actually think our mandates are too modest, even though they're higher, again, than any other city. So, no, I don't think it's going to drive people to build illegally. Getting to lead platinum standards like the new conservatory or the new Academy of Science is tough. You know, it's more difficult to do a living roof. Um, But to do things that just beg common sense is not something that people need to do illegally. Uh, Getting energy efficient light bulbs is one of the great no-brainers of our day. We had a thing we call something called Energy Watch. We just rolled it out and put another $3.7 million up. It's not just all cuts this year. Don't don't believe the press. And we're going out into businesses. We went to, I I don't want to promote, but I'm going to, Lombardi Sports. Kind of an old San Francisco Mm -hmm. institution. These guys will save. They they had no idea. They're just right up um, on, uh, I guess, Polk Street. Not so many blocks from us.
0: You have an impressive sense of where things are. No, Most well, of our speakers don't know where north is. Huh? No, that's, uh, <laughs> but, uh,
1: but they, these guys just got uh, the advantage of our Energy Watch program. They're going to save. I think it was forty some one thousand dollars this year. And I said, well, where have you been the last decade? He started doing the math. Half a million dollars he could have saved if he just flipped out his light bulbs. We're actually getting so aggressive. This is fun. We've moved so far beyond the incandescent CFL things. Now we're about to ban certain kinds of CFLs. See, it's just one thing to talk about CFLs. It's the old T12s, those big tubes. We want to ban those so you have T8s. And I was with Manny Diaz in Florida the other day, again, getting inspired. He says, we're going to ban T8s and only do T5s. (laughs) To which I am going to be sending him a letter tomorrow saying big mistake, because there's reasons you don't want to ban T8s that I won't waste your time on. Uh, But nonetheless, I liked his thinking, competitive thinking. But we're actually getting into even more prescriptive strategies in terms of encouraging the right kind of energy efficiency as opposed to the bad kind of energy efficiency. These are ways to have fun as mayor. Two more questions. Uh, One twittered from Steve
0: Midgley. Higher density cities can be more energy efficient than low density. What is San Francisco's plan for density? Manhattan is probably greener in that sense than any other city in the U.S. and one of the greenest in the world.
1: Yeah, well, density is is, uh, environmentally shrewd and sound, Mm -hmm. no question about it. Sprawl is self-evident in terms of not only just the inefficiency, but the the lack of density requires more miles traveled, uh, and it requires uh, more energy consumption by definition. So it's absolutely right. And this is the challenge, isn't it? This is the challenge when I talk to my dad who says, Gavin, when your grandfather was here, the skyline did not look like this. How could you have allowed that Rincon Tower to be built? What have you done to the beautiful skyline? I was driving in over the Bay Bridge. I couldn't believe my eyes. When did that get built, he said. I said, well, Dad, it's a strategy. We have 15 years of planning. It went through an advisory strategy community was a big part of it and it's part of our new urbanization and it's you're the one that's the environmentalist in the family, you're the this that's what you taught me that density matters and it's smart growth, it's around the transit corridors right near a number of bus stations will be right near the new uh, again the new Grand Central Station on the West Coast, Transbay Terminal um, and this is what we're doing and this is controversial we're doing higher density, we're doing taller buildings We're not going to destroy the neighborhoods. We're not going, my friends on West Portal that are showing me pictures of high-rises on West Portal, we're not doing (laughs) high-rises. We're not going to be doing them here on Chestnut Street. You know, people I know are nervous. We're going to keep the unique character that defines the best of our neighborhoods. We understand the cultural competency, that character that makes this city not anywhere USA, makes every single district something special. But in the downtown core, in this new extended downtown towards Rincon Hill, we're going to allow for more density. And we think that's a smart strategy so we can grow our population, which incidentally has grown by over 100,000 since the last census. We actually appealed our census, and it's now at 800,000, 799. And we think they are still wildly undercounting it. We think we're closer to 900,000. And when the new census data comes, we're going to be very aggressive on that. I think you'll see a number closer to that. So we're getting well, back to why is census time. data uh, foggy like that? Because they don't count everybody. There's no incentive to count. It costs the federal government more money to count everybody appropriately and properly. I actually, we hired a firm to come out called do a drill down, and they drilled down and did real cross analysis. PG&E bills. Um, uh, they did. Um, Cable bills, they, did, they cross-referenced it. They found literally 97, I think it was 96 or 97,000 more San Francisco residents. And this is certifiable. I mean, absolutely real. And we went to the Census Bureau, and we realized we had never appealed our census data. California doesn't do this. Other small states appeal census data all the time. Why do they do it? Smart. All that federal money. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars. And I didn't know a city, candidly, ignorance. This is the downside of having a new mayor. You don't always know everything. And you I, I do know what I don't know, which is an enormous amount. And that's the good th- side about being here for five or eight years. But we appealed it, and we actually won. But what happens is they have to take population away from other cities or states. So, I don't. yeah, Portland. Yeah, Portland had a decline of 40,000. and. We're at 800,000. So we went up. And by the way, all that is all the, all the new federal stimulus dollars, all those, those per capita dollars, beneficiaries. I mean, we're talking millions of dollars of good news already. Our competitive grants, we use this new census data. So this is a big, big deal. Transportation dollars, those are worried about muni. Those are transportation dollars that are notably on a formula basis. Uh, and these are going, so we're gonna be very great. One of the things, by the way, I'm sorry on this, on census, this is insidious. Because of marriage, gay marriage, they don't accept or acknowledge married couples. So if you were legally married and you say you're married, the computer, even if you locally do it, the computer, national computer, will override that if it's same-sex. They're not gonna count all gay couples. How, how do they know who's gay? Way. I'm we married to somebody
0: named Ryan. Do they know that that's a female? I mean, uh,
1: Well, that's a point, too. No, but it's a strange, again, it, this is again, just a whole, whole issue of the rights movement and how long it takes to ultimately get things right. This is a big issue uh, that we're uh, pushing. And Mayor Bloomberg, again, we're, we do this left coast, right, uh, uh, right coast uh, hits. Uh, we're doing these joint letters, uh, the city council in New York, and we'll be doing the same thing here in San Francisco to try to fight this. Okay, Just last FY question. On.
0: Probably one you haven't had before. This is from Kevin Kelly. What is the biggest hurdle for San Francisco in the next 10,000 years? <laughs> and what
1: are you gonna do about it? Earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> Earthqu- 10,000 years, you, then, you, then you're worried about that one inch becoming one foot or three foot tectonic plate moving. Uh, and then mm-hmm. so that makes me think density may not be the smartest thing, right? You gotta be closer <laughs> to the ground. Um, so, I'm arguing both sides of my Sea that. level rise, are you ready for that? Sea level, no, the, and, and that was what I was going to answer. Look, mm-hmm. it's clearly um, a global climate, as Friedman says, disruption. Um, it's the seriousness to which we all should take the sea level rise, which incidentally is already happening. There was a study that came out that at the Golden Gate Bridge, it showed, I, I, I don't want to be quoted, but I think it showed either four Got or me. six inches higher than it was a century ago. Xander, what did you have on that? What was it? 12 inches. Okay, you go back 150 years. So already, and this is when things are going right, pretty well, right? And now the consciousness lasts 50 years. And, and you got, what, 6.7 billion people, 9.2 billion, 10,000 years. My gosh, where will we be? Um, and so it clearly is uh, climate change. So we've got to get serious. It's as if, you know, I'm really worried. Cap and trade looks like it's, it's, it's going away. I mean, I can't. Even Obama started sort of softening on cap and trade. And no one wants the guts to do a carbon tax because you're going to be out of office. You think gay marriage is controversial? Do a carbon tax in this climate. Listen to Sean Hannity's thoughts on that uh, or O'Reilly. Um, so it's, I mean, but something, this is serious. Cities can't just, I mean, San Francisco, it's great in Portland. and New York. This is serious, And uh, this is alarming, and it needs real national leadership. And with respect, there's no bigger crisis, with even respect to this financial crisis, than the environmental crisis. And if cap and trade goes away, if we don't have that, we're in serious peril. You see the stats. You see the numbers. And you just saw two days ago, or was it last week, the end of the week, the new models of the polar ice caps. Again, it's every single one of these reports shows things much worse than even the pessimistic estimates in terms of the snow melt and the seasonal components of new ice creation as well. And so I just think, you know, as Van says, save the polar bears and save ourselves. Uh, and that's a big call to all of us, and that's the opportunity to link it to the economy and link it to environmental justice and income inequality and race, and that's why I again maintain my optimism, even ten thousand years from now when Stewart's clock continues to tick. Thank you all very, Thank you. Very, very much. Well done.
0: Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.